going to start uh, the word I have for you guys this morning just uh, by actually reflecting on last week. So who was here last week? Who listened to Emily's preach? Who enjoyed it? Yeah, it was good, right? Um, now, I think we could easily move past last week. You know, another Sunday done, another preach done, we sat through it. Yeah, it was good, but you know, and, and not let it impact our lives. But Emily said something so profound last week. It literally has been challenging me all week. It just this level of profundity and depth and power in this in this word that she gave, and it's just just part of her part of her preach last week. So I encourage you, if you weren't here last week, uh, we play it on the podcast, and even if you were here last week, we play it on the podcast. Um, but yeah, so she said this crazy. I just I can't believe it. This is about Elizabeth and Zechariah b- um, before the coming of Jesus. She said this: Elizabeth called Jesus Lord before he was even fully formed. What? Elizabeth, when Jesus was in the womb of Mary, said, I call you Lord. That is a powerful truth. That is just such a challenge to me. I've been loving it all week. Um, So Elizabeth called Christ Lord. That in Greek is kyrios. It means master, owner, leader, and also the title we use for God in some instances. It's someone with in the Roman and Greek times, in this period of life in the Roman Empire, with the power of life and death over someone. So in Roman times, if, if, a, if a, a baby's born and the dad looks at the baby and is like, I'm not so keen on you, this is, this is true, but I, you know, I don't want you to be my son or my daughter, maybe there's a deformity, maybe there's a disability, they would expose them and they would die. They have the power, he does not become their son until the father says, you are my son. And then there's Elizabeth who says, I believe that this baby is the power of life and death over me. God flips it. That's a powerful, powerful truth. So I just encourage you, uh, revisit Emily's preach. It was, it was, it's really impacted me, and I, f- I thank you and honor you for that. It was really amazing. So yeah, let's, just, let's give it Emily a round of applause. <laughs> so that's kind of the foreword to uh, my words today. And uh, the title, if you want one, is The One in Your Way. That's not a negative thing. Like, it's not the one, get out of my way. The one in your way. Way means road, journey, or path. It can mean a literal sense, as in just like a a path, or a metaphorical sense, as in your journey of life. Okay. Let me just pray quickly. Thank you, God, for coming as a baby. Thank you that that baby was our Lord. The moment he was born, the moment before he was born, as soon as he was formed in the womb, he was our Lord. And I pray, as, uh, as we listen to this preach today, that we just understand in our hearts that Jesus Christ is Lord and Master over everything in our lives. He's Lord over this preach. He's Lord over this church. He's Lord over my work, my relationships, and my time. And Jesus, we just adore you this morning. And we love you. Amen. Okay. So this week, I'm looking at Zechariah. So uh, Emily zoomed in on uh, Elizabeth last week. I'm kind of zooming in on Zechariah. Then I'm going to zoom out and have some sort of wider context. So, where is it? So my preach title today is the one in your way, and I'll unpack pack this a little bit later. But let me first get into the meat of the story and use the Bible. So we go from Luke one five twenty five. It's quite it's quite a you know wake up. You might have to pinch someone because it's quite it's quite a lot of Bible. I, I will summarize it though. One five to twenty five. The birth of John the Baptist foretold, in the days of Herod, king of Judea. There was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. 
and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statues, statutes of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Now while he was serving as priest before God, while, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, as you kind of would be. Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong drink. Amen. And he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before them in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just. To make ready, prepare the way for the Lord a people prepared. And Zechariah said to the angel, how shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. <laughs> Bit of a faux pas there, his wife. <laughs> She's old. <laughs> and the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they're wondering in this delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them. And they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple, and he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my shame among the people. Quite, quite a lot of Bible there. So I'll summarize it. Zechariah and Elizabeth are obedient and faithful people of God. He is a priest of the line of Aaron. They are unfortunately both childless. They can't have children. God promise him, he promises him and his wife a child, and not just any child, a child who will prepare the way for Jesus, a, a fairly important child. You know. He doesn't believe them, and so he is struck dumb. In fact, he can't it's, it's believed that scholars can, he can't speak or hear, because later on in the story, people have to use sign language to communicate to him. So he can't speak or hear, and then his wife becomes pregnant, and then, as we know later, John is born, John the Baptist. So let me first give you some context into like the social and economic repercussions of barrenness in that time. Not only is it emotionally devastating, emo and, I, I, and I know there are people in this church that are struggling with this, so I just, God, give, it, give, 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 give them a child in Jesus' name. Sorry, just, just God, get, I just believe in Jesus now. I know it's, it's, and it's emotionally devastating. And I just, I, just, I just feel that in my heart this morning. But for Zechariah and Elizabeth, it's more than that. It's actually socially and economically devastating. Because in the time of um, that Zechariah's living, there's no like welfare state. There's no NHS, there's no um, private pension, there's no, um, there's no uh, government pension, there's no stocks and shares and equities, there's no mixed portfolio to, to look forward to your retirement. No, what there is in, 
for Israel, it was expected that your children would look after you as you got older. In fact, it's a commandment of the Lord. It says, honor your parents is one of the Ten Commandments. And it was believed to be of paramount importance to Jews at the time. So not, and, and, and then also, they are shamed in the community because for some, it's a sign of God's uh, displeasure with them. So they are emotionally devastated, the fact they can't have a child. And then they are socially shunned because they can't have that child. And they have no hope for the future because they know as they get older and they can't work, they've got no one to provide for them. So they're in a desperate situation. And they're very old. They're likely to be over 60, both of them at this time. So Zechariah's coming to that period in his life where he's probably past his physical prime. And obviously Elizabeth is past you know, the physical childbearing age. Not only this, Zechariah has a second job. He's not just a full-time priest. He's got a second job. And it's not just like some sort of nice accounting, like sedentary, sitting down in an office kind of job. It's likely, this is what scholars believe, is that he actually had a small farm. (laughs) And he had to work on this farm. Heavy manual labor for a 60-year-old. This is because in the decades preceding, high taxes on the poor and priestly corruption meant the amount that Zechariah received from tithes was much reduced. So not only are they, they're socially shunned, uh, they're emotionally devastated, and they've got no hope for an economic future. He is working so hard. And you can imagine, he's probably feeling a little bit frustrated, a little bit tired. Imagine just just six years old, you've got to work your job as a priest, then you go to a farm, you're doing manual labor. There's no no JCBs and combine harvesters back then. He's doing manual labor. And let's be honest, he's probably a bit without hope especially for the future. He's 60, he doesn't have a child. This is the context that God is moving in when he comes to Zechariah and Elizabeth and says, you're having a child. And not just any child, but a child that will prepare the way for Jesus Christ. Okay, who here has read the Bible cover to cover? Every book. Adele, Julia, Adele, that's good. We've got a few, got a few. I'm talking even the weird ones, you know. Habakkuk. <laughs> Who's read Habakkuk? <laughs> the thing is, because nobody's really read Habakkuk, you can just say what you want about it. Oh, yeah, yeah, you know, Habakkuk says this. Yeah, no, yeah, no. You play on the Xbox all night. Yeah, Habakkuk 4, verse 3. No, you can do, don't do that. <laughs> there is no point. <laughs> He's read it. He's definitely read it. <laughs> there are 66 books in the Bible. In fact, I believe, Steve, are you, um, you, you, uh, you plan to read the whole Bible in a year, right? How close are you? Where, 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 where are you now? So you're nearly there, nearly there. Well, I'm going to save you some time this morning, Steve, because I believe I can sum up the whole 66 book of the Bible in 20 verses in Luke. That's a bold claim. I'm going to have to back it up. <laughs> so 66 books in the Bible, some of them are very difficult, some of them are very strange. But I believe that the entirety of God's redemptive story can be found in the first chapter of Luke, in the story of Elizabeth and Zechariah. Now, a little side note, read the Gospel of Luke. Read it, cover to cover. This, this Christmas, I, I, I just implore you, read the cover, read Luke cover to cover. It is phenomenal, especially to those new to the Christian faith or to those who have a real heart for the marginalized. The Gospel of Luke is full of timeless literary quality. It has a particular focus on the marginalized individual. It is simply brilliant. Even unbelievers 
study the Gospels, and they consider them works of the highest quality, full of technique, beauty, and wonder. There is layer upon layer of goodness, layer upon layer of meaning, and layer upon layer of God's love for you. So I encourage you all this Christmas, read the Gospel of Luke and the rest of them. <laughs> They're like a trifle, a trifle of goodness. Not like the trifle in Friends, but like a trifle of goodness. Now, when I say that I believe that in the story of Luke, in 20 or so verses, the entire of God's redemptive story can be found, this is um, a big word. It's what we call a microcosm. So uh, let me break it down for you. <laughs> Timing was on point there. <laughs> Just a little bit of humor. I know I'm a bit intense, so, you know. <laughs> now, this is what we call a microcosm. Microcosm is made out of two words. Micros meaning small, cosmos, world. Small world. A small representation of something much larger than the individual. That's what this story in Luke is. And I'll give you the different elements of Zechariah's story and talk about how it's a microcosm. They'll come up on the screen for you. Firstly, they are obedient. Zechariah and Elizabeth are obedient and righteous according to Luke 1.6. Secondly, Zechariah was chosen or elected by lot to go into the temple. Thirdly, Zechariah was promised something, a child and a special child by God in Luke 1.13. Fourthly, Zechariah did not believe in the promise of God. Fifthly, because of his unbelief, he was made silent. He could not hear or speak, and people had to use hand gestures to communicate to him until his son was born. Sixthly, and this is a great one, God delivers on his promises. And he breaks his silence through grace. Because it says later on in Luke 1.60, when John is born, John means Yahweh is gracious. So God breaks his silence through grace. And then seventhly, God gives Zechariah hope for the future, redeeming his family and giving him a future of social and economic and emotional redemption. Okay, got that? Microcosm, small world representing something larger. So now we've zoomed in on Zechariah's life. Let's zoom out to the bigger picture. And it's another big word, so let's break it down. Let's break it down. <laughs> As you can see, we practice that a lot. <laughs> this is what we call a meta-narrative. Okay? Meta means transcend. Narrative means story. A transcending story. A big, unifying, complex, coherent framework. So we've got microcosm, small world representing something bigger. We've got meta-narrative, a big unifying story. Okay? As a meta-narrative of God's redemption. So let's look at God's big story of the Bible and how he uses the nation of Israel and compare it to Zechariah's story. Firstly, like with Zechariah, it starts with brokenness. Sin enters the world. Man disobeys. There are issues. We're fighting with we're not living according to God. We're not walking with God. So God has to make a plan. He has to make a meta-narrative plan. And he chose to redeem it through the nation of Israel. Firstly of Noah, and then, uh, then what we call the patriarchs, then we call Abraham, who is a man that God chose his meta-narrative to flow. Like Zechariah, he is righteous. He's a righteous man. doesn't mean he's perfect. It means he's just trying to live the ways of God and follow the ways of the Lord. There's only one perfect person in the Bible, and his name is Jesus. I'm going to get into him shortly. Don't worry. Secondly, through the na nation of Israel, Abraham is chosen 
to be the people of God. Israel is chosen to be people of God. Thirdly, Abraham is promised a son, despite him and his wife being very old, a bit like Zechariah and Elizabeth. And not only that, that all nations will be blessed through this son. Fourthly, Abraham did not believe the promise. Bit of a recurring theme. And in fact, he has, because of this, he has uh, relations with his slave, uh, slave girl, Hagar, and it creates Ishmael, which creates a whole other, that's a whole other story. Like, there's a whole other, other issues. And also, Israel consistently, throughout the Bible, they're promised things by God, promised land, hope, and they constantly, because they're human, because they're us, they constantly do not believe in God's promises. And because of this, at this time in history, they are uh, subjugated by empires, by the Roman Empire in this one. Fifthly, there is silence. There, between the last book in the Old Testament, Malachi, and the first book in the New Testament, the Gospels, there are 400 years of silence because of God's disobedience. So a bit longer than Zechariah's nine months. Sixthly, God breaks his silence through grace because Christ is born, because Yahweh is gracious, because Yahweh is gracious. So gracious that he decided to send his one and only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have life eternal and life in fullness. That's God's grace. Seventhly, God, like Zechariah, gives us a living hope for the future because Christ is not a hope in the past. He is a living hope. Right now, our Lord and Savior, present with us always, uh, strengthening us, being with us every single day, even right now in the midst of us, Christ dwells. So in this little gem of Luke, this little 20 so, this little snapshot, this little 20 verses or so, we get the entirety of the gospel message. And it's, it's so easy to skip over. I've read this so many times, I've just skipped over it. We could get to the interesting part, you know, the, you know, the, the manger, the magi, the shepherds, they're all pretty cool, the gifts, the star, you know, all the big stuff in the nativity plays. And we can often move past Elizabeth and Zechariah. But I believe that we would skip over an eternal and lasting truth. And it is this, that God in his big unifying story, his meta-narrative, he believes in the small world. There are both, they both unify, that in God in his big story, God cares about the one. In the big picture, long-term strategic plan that has taken thousands of years to be fulfilled, in a plan that has seen kings and queens rise and fall, in a plan that has seen the Babylonian Empire, the Assyrian Empire, the Persian Empire, the Alexandrian Empire, the Ptolemaic Empire, the Seleucid Empire, and the Roman Empire, has seen battles, has seen the whole gamut of human emotion, um, you know, love, hatred, betrayal, friendship, um, everything. In this, God reaches out to the individual, to a small family in Israel and says, you are loved. You see, I see you, Elizabeth and Zechariah. I know you're struggling. I know you're struggling, but I see you. And I say, you are loved. And I will give you grace. I will give you God, John. I will give you Yahweh is gracious. And he gives them a hope for the future. No longer are they shunned. No longer are they concerned about who will look after them. They are given joy and hope through the grace of God. And more than that, they're given a son of such importance that he will prepare the way for the ultimate hope, hope, Jesus Christ, who will be cousin to their son. What an honor. What an honor. So this is the main thing that I want you to grasp from Zechariah and Elizabeth's story. And it's this. In the big story, the small world that we operate in matters. In God's meta-narrative, the small everyday matters. 
in the big story, Flow Church matters. Amen. <laughs> in the small story, Egham. In the big story, Egham matters. In the big story, Staines matters. In the big story, your workplace matters. In the big story, your neighbor matters. In the big story, the man or lady in your local chippy Chinese or supermarket matters. In your big story, your children matter. In your big story, big story, Elizabeth and Zechariah matter. In the big story, the one matters. So what God's story of the redemption of Zechariah and Elizabeth teaches us is this. In the vast big unifying story of God's redeeming plan, God reaches out to the individual and he gives them grace. God reaches out for the lost. God reaches out and sees a hurting family. God reaches out and sees a faithful man and woman who are suffering. And he reaches out and he says, Yahweh is gracious. My grace is sufficient for you. I give you hope. In the middle of the crescendo of his divine drama that is the coming of Jesus Christ, he reaches out to a small family in Israel and he says, I love you. I will redeem you. I will buy you back. God cares deeply, deeply for the one. Okay? Everyone happy with that? In the vast meta-narrative of God's redemptive story, he cares for the one. Now let's take this truth and apply it. About the one. So let's talk about the one. Who's the one in your way? Who's the one in your way? Remember, way isn't, it can be your journey of life. It's a metaphorical journey of life. In fact, in early days, um, Christians weren't called Christians. We were called followers of the way. Hohodos is the Greek. It means the way, the metaphorical journey. We follow the way. Because Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Right? So we, are, we, we were initially followers of the way. We later were called Christians. Who is the one in your way? Let me turn to the Bible in Jesus. Luke 24. Jesus has just completed his big mission. The big plan has been done. There's a little bit more to do later. We'll talk about it another time. But he's done the mission on the cross. He has done. He's taken our shame, our mess-ups, our brokenness, our falling short, also called sin. And a righteous man has been... T- uh, turned over to those who are unrighteous. His back has been mutilated. His wrists have been pierced. His side ripped open. His body wrapped in agony. And he's been put on a cross, the most shameful death possible in that age. And his breath falls silent. And Jesus Christ, the hope of the world, dies on the cross. He dies. But then what he does next is amazing. He takes all of that mess, all of that brokenness, all of that rubbish, and he takes it to the grave, and he leaves it there. He leaves it there, and he rises again on the third day, and he's risen again in this awesome new resurrection body, which I think is really cool. I kind of imagine it to be something like Iron Man's suit. <laughs> that's, that's probably heresy. He's like, like you can just like fly and stuff just awesome he's full of power and he's just re- he's just overcome death itself right he's probably feeling pretty good you know, it's a good day he can walk through walls again pretty awesome and he is the risen christ full of god's power and strength what does he do now does he stand up on a big hill and go like you guys were all wrong look at me i'm amazing look at me i'm gonna go to see caesar i think it was tiberius caesar at the time say so, hey tiberius i'm i'm the real emperor i'm the real king no no What he does, he goes after the one. 
Jesus goes after this. He goes after the one, or ones in this case. He does not give himself a mega stage. He goes after the one. Chapter 24 of Luke's Gospel. It's called On the Road to Emmaus. One of the most striking passages in the Bible. I won't read it in full. I'm going to just give you the story. There's uh, two men, one a disciple of Jesus, are leaving Jerusalem. They're in a state of confusion, fear, and doubt. They've just seen the guy they thought was the Messiah, who was going to redeem the, the, the Israel, die. And they're, they're probably frightened for their lives. And they're on, they're on this road. They're on the way. And Christ comes and meets them. And he sees them on their way. And he comes and walks beside him. And then what Christ does is he, he actually evangelizes to them about himself. Which is, must be the weirdest situation. It's some sort of third person evangelism. And he goes, yeah, yeah, you've heard. They're like, oh, have you not heard about Jesus? He's like, yeah, yeah, I've, I have heard about him. And they're like, yeah, he, he died. And like, yeah, yeah, but wasn't he supposed to die? And then he starts expounding the scriptures to them, saying, like, no, no, he w- was supposed to come, die for our sins, and rise again. Like, how could you not understand? And they're like, oh, wow, this, is, this is actually makes some sort of sense. So like, yeah, yeah, I hear. Um, so, and he says, and then what happens eventually is they, they stop and they rest for the night. And they suddenly realize, as they're taking communion, that this is Jesus Christ. And he's just saying, I'm here. Remember me? I am the way. I found you on the way. I am the way. And I care about you. These are guys that have probably deserted him. They're they're running for fear of their lives. They're not evangelizing about Jesus. They're thinking, oh, what are we going to do next? And he says, I'm going after you. I'm going to meet you on your journey. I'm going to speak to you about me. And I'm going <laughs> to tell you that I rose again, and I am the way. That's powerful for me. Who are the ones in your way? Acts 3, uh, Jesus has just ascended to heaven. The church in Jerusalem has just started. And now Peter and John are walking to the temple. They meet a beggar on the way, on their journey. And he's been lame since birth. And, he's, and, he, and the reason why he's there on the way to the temple is so that he can get the most amount of money because it makes sense. If you, if you want the most amount of money, you, you're, in, you, you're getting most people's way and a lot of Jews go to the temple. It just makes economic sense. He's in the way of John and Peter and what do they do? They could easily walk on past him. He's been lame since birth. They've probably walked past him before. He's been there for a long time. They've been in Jerusalem for a long time. They've probably walked past him before. But no, not this time. John and Peter see him and they look at him and they say, look at me. And it says... In the original translation, it means he fixed their eyes upon him. And he says, silver or gold I do not have, but what I do give to you, do have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ, rise up and walk. And he walks. A guy lame from birth walks because someone, Peter and John, saw him in their way and decided to reach out. Who are the ones in our way? Let me give you uh, some personal testimony from my, from my life. Some of you might have heard this before. Do you know, most of us sitting here are here because people in our way, in our journey, have reached out to us or prayed for us. Rewind it back to New Year's Eve 2008. I'm 18. Alexandra Burke's Hallelujah is the Xmas hit. Remember her? Brexit is non-existent. Boris Johnson is mayor of London. <laughs> Remember that? <laughs> easier times. Easier times. I am deeply broken as an individual. 
I'm feeling isolated, unloved, and have no secure identity of who I am. I am so desperate for approval, I turn to drugs. On this night, I engage in the dirtiness and filthiness of human existence to a deeper level. I buy a gram of cocaine. I stole money from my parents to buy it. Mum's here today. She doesn't actually know that. Sorry, I'll, I'll pay you back later. <laughs> Sorry, Mum. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I drink. I smoke. Sleep around. Eventually, I start a fight with three older lads and get severely beaten up. And hilariously, as I'm... As my mum, as I come home and I've got, I'm bloody and I've got bruises and stuff, my mum takes off my shirt and she sees the tattoo that I had done two years ago and she didn't know about. <laughs> <laughs> but I returned from that night. This is New Year's Eve 2008. Broken, bruised and hurting. Nothing has changed. Nobody was in my way. There was nobody in my way that night. No one to help me. I felt so alone. Fast forward to New Year's Eve 2011, I, I think. I'm at home. I'm not going out feeling broken, more broken than ever, isolated, depressed, desperate. This is when something amazing happened. Three people I know and two I don't put themselves in my way. They get involved in my journey and they say, I believe in you. I believe that Jesus Christ loves you. I believe that you are loved, you are in family, and I, and they put themselves in my way. So the three people are these people. My mum. My mum sees that I'm downcast, and she's speaking to her friend Janine on the phone, who's a great woman of God. She's the second one. Janine then says, hey, my daughter's having a New Year's Eve party tonight. Why don't, why don't I ask her if you can come? Third person. So you've got my mum, Janine, her friend Janine, and then her daughter, Ellie. And Ellie says, yeah, you can come to this party. I want to have you in my way. These three people put themselves in the way of my journey and said, and reached out to me. I then go to the party. Average party, you know, nothing special. Yo, what do I just say? It's no, none of the good stuff, you know? It's before I'm redeemed. Here, this is where it, this is powerful. I meet two brothers, one who has gone to the Lord and one who is standing right, uh, standing, sitting right there, Liam, who reach out to me. They put themselves in my way. They speak to me about Jesus. They say, I know a way. I know the way, the truth, and the life. I see that you're on your journey. I see that you're struggling. I know someone who can help you. They put themselves in their way, and I give my life to Jesus because of their intervention. Because they put themselves in my way, I give my life to Jesus. So good. You've been put in your place for a purpose. You each have an individual road or journey. You each have a workplace, you each have a family, you each have a street, you each have a home. You have been put in your place for a purpose. I believe that. Let me speak about Paul and the Areopagus. <laughs> no, Paul is speaking to the Athenians. He's, you know, Paul, Paul the Apostle is, 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 um, is, is spreading the word of Jesus Christ around the world at this point. And he speaks to the Athenians. And now, if you don't know this, Athens was a home of philosophy. Lots of wise people came from there, like Socrates, Plato, that kind of stuff. And there's another guy called Epicurus, who you might have heard, might not have heard of. And he came up with this philosophy, and it's called Epicurean Materialism. Say that. Um, Epicurean Materialism. Okay, I will explain this. (laughs) 
Now, this is what Epicurean materialism believes, and it's kind of a prevailing philosophy of the day, and actually, it's kind of made a return with the new atheists, people like Sam Harris and Richard Dawkins. So, it's not new atheism is not new atheism, it's old atheism. It says this, matter is all that exists. Spirit does not exist. Gods are made out of matter, and those gods are not interested in us. That's Epicurean materialism. So Paul stands up in the heart of Epicurean materialism, the, part that, that the heart of people saying God is made out of matter, God does not care about the individual, he just lets, they believe that atoms just collided everywhere and everything was made by chance. God doesn't plan your footsteps, God doesn't love you as an individual, and God is actually made out of the same stuff of us, and he's not interested in you. Paul does something very brave. <laughs> he stands up and he says this. He says this in Acts 17. And he, this is talking about people um, speaking about Jesus. And he made out their appointed times and history and boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any of us. This is like, imagine going to Hillsong Conference and saying, preaching about, I don't believe in LED lights. Or going to Bethel and be like, I don't really believe in the supernatural. This is a guy speak, going into the heart of people that say that um, gods are not interested in us and saying, no, 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 no. And, and saying that God, is, God does stuff out of chance. He says, no, no, no. You have been placed in a time and per a place for a purpose. And God is deeply interested in you. And God is deeply interested in your neighbor. God is deeply interested in your family. God is deep, deeply interested in the individual and the one. How we can we prepare the way for Jesus this Christmas? It's not long to go. I say we prepare the way by loving and inviting the ones in our way. There are people in our way in our everyday life and journey that are there for a reason. They've been appointed by God to be in that time and place so that we might reach out for them. So what I'd like to invite us to do, uh, if, if you wouldn't mind the, the band coming up, that'd be great. Sorry, I was getting close to the end. don't know how long I've been. Oh, half an hour, doing me. You'll see at the back here, we've got our flyers for the Christmas carol concert, which is on the 22nd of December. We've got two services. I'd like us to just take a moment of reflection and think about the ones in our way. Those individuals in our lives that we could invite. The people at your local convenience store or your supermarket. The people in, um, in your workplace. The, your family. We've been reaching out for years. I just, I just encourage us all to invite them this Christmas. So at the back here, we've got little flow cups and inside are a bunch of um, flyers. And I just invite you all, invite people. Invite people on your everyday journey of life. Just invite them. And like, like myself, like many of you here, we don't know what's going to happen. Because God has appointed you in a time and place. Don't, don't, we sometimes give too much uh, provide too much work for the, you know, the, the big cheeses, the big preachers, that kind of stuff. He's not waiting for Stephen Furtick to come to your workplace. You are in your workplace. He's not waiting for these big super preachers, who are great, by the way. But he's saying, no, no, no. You are in your workplace for a time and a reason, and they are on your journey, and they want, and God desperately wants them to reach out to you. I just believe.
but God loves the world. And the whole story of Zechariah and Elizabeth, in this vast cosmic story of God's redemption, Jesus Christ comes and says, I love the one and I will redeem that family. I will redeem that individual. And Jesus says, I'm getting alongside that individual who deserted me and betrayed me. And Peter and John say, I am getting behind that individual who's on my road and in my way and in my journey. And I say, in Jesus' name, may we all find the one in our way this Christmas and invite them and tell them about you, God, in Jesus' name. How can we prepare the way for Jesus this Christmas? by inviting the one in your way to come to the carol concert, come to church, tell them about Jesus. So yeah, I just encourage all of us as we leave today, grab, grab loads of these and then think deeply about the individual that you're going to give them to. And a bit of wisdom. Just a few people share this. I think it's quite interesting. There was a Harvard study done in 1978 where there's a line at a photocopier and it's a, it's a psychological study. And one person with a bunch of photocopy, photocopies would come up to them and say, hey, can I push in front? I need to make... So yeah, the first time he'd say, I need to, I, I need to, can, I, can I make some copies? That, okay. The person who did that got a 60% success rate of people let them do it in front, okay? Make sense? Secondly, they used the word because. They said, they went up to the front of the line saying, can I use the photocopy machine because I need to make copies? No new information is needed. It's obvious that copies, that's why you're there, right? But because of the word because, it goes up from 60% to 93%. Because we are people that believe in the why. So I encourage you, as you take your leaflet, as you give it to the person in your way, do it with a because. Hey, come because I love you. Come because you'll enjoy it. Come because there'll be mince pies. I don't know if there are. But you, you come because... Uh, I want you to be there. Don't just say, hey, you know, if you don't mind, if you're not, if you're not busy, you know, come here. Come because I really, really want you to be there. Come because it will change your life. So that's my encouragement to you this morning, a bit of wisdom about inviting people. Invite the people in your way and invite them with a because. That's what I'm